The Nation State of Play podcast is produced by IBC Media in San Diego, California. Hi, and welcome to Nation State of Play. I'm your host, Brian Miller. On each episode of this podcast, we explore high-impact topics determining the future of our nation state. Well, thanks for listening today. Our guest is Chuck Rocha. He's really widely recognized as one of the leaders in the country on Latino voting trends, became sort of famous for working on Bernie Sanders' Latino uh, turnout operation, which, you know, for a septuagenarian Jewish guy from Vermont did, did pretty well within the Latino community. And so a lot of people looked at what Chuck was doing and said, wow, how did you make that happen? And He's now working on races across the country on these topics, and he's got some really interesting insights into maybe what the Democrats are doing wrong, maybe what the Republicans are doing right in some cases, but wrong in others. Um, And given how important we know the Latino vote is, not just to California politics, but to issues around the country, really excited to have Chuck on and do a deep dive on these topics. So um, hope you'll hope you'll listen. I hope you'll share this episode. Chuck Rocha coming up right after this. American democracy is good, but we can make it better. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers includes organizations across the country who are working right now to build a better democracy by opening primaries, implementing safe, secure voting systems, reducing corruption, and increasing transparency. Listen to our weekly podcast, How to Win Friends and Save the Republic, to hear updates from the latest movements in the democracy reform space. Subscribe and learn more about us at nonpartisanreformers.org. Welcome back to the Nation State of Play podcast. Chuck, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Great to see you again. It's good to be back, Brian. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we wanted to have you back for a few reasons. There's been a lot of interesting developments going on with some of the primaries already. I certainly want to talk about that. But before we dig into that, you've you've launched your own podcast uh, with someone that I'm a great admirer of, Mike Madrid. And um, yeah, tell us, tell us what you guys are up to. Tell us what you guys are focusing on with your new show. You know, there's been no lack of coverage around the importance of Latinos in the upcoming election. And Mike Madrid, for those of you at home who may not realize, is a registered Republican, helped start the Lincoln Project. Uh, I ran Bernie Sanders' campaign. I've been a yellow dog Democrat my whole life. So we've come together in kind of the old crossfire uh, playbook to have a in-depth, under the hood, behind the curtain conversation about what's happening in these midterm elections, really focusing on the Latino vote, where the Latino vote will have a big impact. I'm also kicking off uh, probably in two months, the second season of Nuestro podcast, where I'm going to do more cultural work around uh, entertainment, culture, politics. And so there's lots of things moving. But right now we just released the fourth episode of the Latino Vote podcast with Mike Madrid just this week. And so you can get that where you get your favorite podcasts. Okay, so you just dated both of us there and, and managed managed to insult me a little bit there because Crossfire was filmed on my college campus when I, when I was in school in DC, and I think that's been off the air for a few decades, if I'm if I'm right. So 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 for those listeners who didn't follow that, you want to just remind people of what that show was for the well, very rarely you're going for. Well, for all of you old folks, and I won't age you, Brian, as much as me, but I have a lot of <laughs> hair and I've been doing campaigns for 32 years. You can do your own math. 
But uh, there used to be shows where Democrats and Republicans would be on shows together and might have opposing views and would have debates on air about policies that would be good for America. Me and Mike Madrid like to say that we both want one thing together. That is the best for our community any way we can get there. We just think we have two different paths and we both think each of our own paths are better. But the thing that we both have in common is that we've been very hypercritical of our own party when it comes to outreach to our community. Okay, so so that's a great jumping off point. I, I want to actually start with the Republican issue on, on this because this is inextricably intertwined with the Democratic issue. Um, and, and Mike is, of course, uh, a leader on this topic in California, here where I'm from, but as a leader nationally from his, his work with the Lincoln Project and others. So what is going on with the Republican Latino vote right now, in your opinion? I think that what they're what they have done is something that's very, very different. Now, Mike Madrid likes to say that they're having great success in spite of themselves. And I get all giddy because I can't agree more. Because what we all know is that, again, I've been doing this for 30 years. Mike Madrid's been doing this for 30 years. So we bring a long lineage of knowing what our parties have evolved into and what we all agree on. And Mike says, up until about eight years ago, there are certain neighborhoods Republicans wouldn't even drive through, much less spend money talking to voters. So what has changed, Brian, is that they're trying to compete for that electorate that they never even tried to compete for. And it, and we also remind people that Democrats win overwhelming majorities of, of voters that are Latino, that are Hispanic. You know, this year was one of the lowest. It was at 58% for Joe Biden. But What's happened is you start seeing a little bit of erosion and then you see spikes in Miami-Dade or in the Texas Valley because Republicans literally are showing up for the first time, building infrastructure and then competing for the vote. Okay, so let, let's talk about what those infrastructure steps are. What, what are the Republicans doing that's getting missed on our side? Right? Two things. One is they have for a long time the Koch brothers, who we all say about like, oh, the Koch brothers. Ah. But they've smartly been uh, creating this thing called the Libre Initiative, building community-based groups that they are well-funding in McAllen, Texas, in Miami, Dade, Florida, and in other places where not just recently, y'all, but for at least the last six years, the last three cycles, they've been pumping money into an organization that's on the ground that this is the key, that never leaves and does more than electoral work. They're helping immigrants with getting driver's license, helping them fill out social security claims, and doing things that really tie them to the community smartly. Chuck Rocha, old organizer, I would have told them to do that. So that's one of the things that's happening on the outside of the party. Inside the party, recently, you started having Republicans setting up their own community centers in places like Las Vegas, Miami, San Antonio, because they're trying to duplicate things of, well, uh, we want to be here in the community. Democrats have only really been showing up the last three months of any election cycle. We're here for you. Again, starting to compete for that narrative. You're talking about some blocking and tackling things here that the Democratic Party is just not doing well. None of this, I take it, should be particularly controversial when you say this. What, but what's the reaction you get? Because I, I see your Twitter feed and it, and it does sound like people aren't listening to you or maybe you're just very vocal on Twitter. I'm not, I'm not sure. I but but what, <laughs> what, 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 so yeah, so what happens when, when you say, which sounds like just good common sense, what happens when you say that to party insiders? You get 
there's part of the party insiders and let's separate these. Let's take the, the Senate campaign, the Senate super PACs, the Senate side of the house, as you will. After the last election, you know, they had a come to Jesus moment where they were like, look, we have a real problem here. We've got to do better at this. They reached out to me and a number of Latino consultants, Latina consultants, Hispanic consultants, and brought us together and said, how can we do this better? They included us. And now they're really doing great work. They have already started doing Spanish language advertising in Arizona, I mean, in Arizona, in Arizona, in Nevada, they're putting together real plans. There's Latinos helping make these ads. So I'm really encouraged. And I've been telling people I'm very bullish on what I'm seeing on the Senate side of the house in almost direct contrast on the house side. I've been working with these, you know, with the congressional uh, Democrats for a long time, they're literally running the same playbook that they run every two years and hoping for different results. The same group of consultants that lost every single house race for the Democrats in 2020 are the exact same consultants who are being hired to lose races in 2022. And there's one thing that they all have in common, that there's not a majority black owned or a majority Latino owned a media firm, which me and you both know, Brian, have most of the power and influence in a campaign at the table. So I worry because the first time in American history, because of redistricting, there are over six seats that are majority people of color that are truly 50-50 seats that we must win if we have any shot at holding the house in Texas, Arizona, Colorado, California. And that don't, don't even count the, the South Florida seats that could be in play. So if you don't have any new consultants of color helping you figure out huge swaths of people of color in an electorate, then I think you're only going to see the worst when it comes to the congressional side of the House. So why do you think the Senate's listening in the House? Isn't? Is this just a matter of there's so many more players uh, in, in the House and that's a little bit more decentralized or what, what's going on here? I think it's intentional. Uh, organizing, right? I think that the Senate understands, and it, look, it's easier when you have a statewide race. There's more Latinos that play in big places like Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. And I think in the House, it's just a more fragmented system. But what I tried to explain to somebody the other day is that you have to make, it's like, think about the women's soccer team. Think about the NFL. You have to be very, very intentional about breaking those cycles of men's soccer players making more than women. You have to be very intentional and have even have a Rooney rule and still only have one black coach. So today the NFL passed a thing saying you got to have more black uh, assistant coaches, uh, more diversity. So they're being very intentional about forcing diversity so that it looks more like the players. We haven't had that come to Jesus meeting in the Democratic Party yet. We still do diversity and inclusion at the party committee level, and they're having diversity and inclusion departments. They're hiring more black and brown people at the committees. But as soon as you get it out into the states, you lose control of that, and it goes right back to the uh, to the good old boy system, if you will, because it's hard if you're a broke black person, brown person, AAPI gay. Most of those folks are just a lower income scale than the folks who've been running campaigns. So there's not an entry point for even that firm to break in. So most of the times those firms don't even get created because if you're mine, second generation Latino and you get to go to college and you finally graduate, you're not going to go fight with the DCCC for a mail contract. You're going to go to work at Coca-Cola. That's a much better job with much better pay with, with a lot less headaches.
I want to go a little bit of state by state here, um, but I want to start with Texas because we we already had this primary. I think there was some really interesting results that came out of it. I know you're heavily involved in this. So, um, but but it's honestly quite hard to make sense out of um, the coverage on this. So, so let's start at the top. Like, what what should we all be taking away from what happened in Texas just a few weeks ago? We should be worried about turnout, but I don't raise too much of an alarm because any of us old heads who've done this for more than thirty seconds knows that in an off year election, boys and girls, less people vote, which is our problem as Democrats as a whole. We had this huge bump in eighteen. That was the first off-year election where Donald Trump was in office because all of us had just freaked the you-know-what out. So because of that, you saw this big spike. The real question out there is who's going to show up without Donald Trump on the ticket, without Joe Biden on the ticket, with just a handful of Senate races and House races that are going to determine the majority. So what you saw in Texas is you did see a little bit of a turnout boost compared to 14, which was the other off-year, but not near as high as 18. You saw that uh, a lot of Latinos voted in the Democratic primary. I was watching the Valley, which I know we'll talk about when we break these down by district. But in the Valley, I answered a million questions about why are Republicans uh, in the Valley turning Latinos turning Republican? Well, in fact, four times as many Latinos voted in the Democratic primary than the Republican primary, saying that there's still the dominant force there. But I tell my Democratic friends that twice as many Republicans voted in the Republican primary that are Latino that had ever voted in a Republican primary before. It's still less than a quarter of the overall vote, but it shows a pattern, Brian, that a lot of time establishment Democrats want to bury their head about and go, oh, we're not going to lose the Democratic vote with Latinos. Oh, they're going to be fine. It was an anomaly because of George Bush. Oh, or they just, you know, they just blow it off. Those folks are going to get a rude awakening because if you looked across the country after the last presidential election in places like L.A. and New York, where there was no presidential campaign run, you saw Donald Trump overperform with Latinos four, five, six, seven points, district by district. All right. Well, let's let's do that breakdown by district in in Texas. You were involved in several of these, if not all of them. You, you just want to get that get that out for for listeners so we understand. Yeah, two big things. Down. There's after redistricting in Texas, there's very few marginal seats. So all of the seats became more red, more blue. They even created some more supermajority blue seats because of the the population growth. Uh, girls and boys at home uh, are is. It was predominantly Latino. Shocking that the most growth in Texas. Well, guess what? Uh, Republicans were trying and have to find places to protect these white incumbent Republicans at all costs because that's their mantra. So what they did is they shoved more Republicans into more red uh, districts, which at the end of this whole complicated thing only really created one marginal seat, one questionable marginal seat, both of them in the South Texas. Okay, Texas 15 is a bacon-shaped congressional district that's skinny and long, like a piece of bacon that's crooked, that, that starts at the bottom in McAllen, which is right on the Mexican border, and goes all the way straight north to San Antonio, around the edge of San Antonio. And so that district was Vicente Gonzalez, an incumbent who barely won last time in a D plus 12 seat. He moves next door because they make his seat a real marginal seat that's now R plus two. So this is the real marginal seat in Texas. Keep the, get this. It's 78% Latino. It's probably 56, 60% registered Democrat, but performance-wise, it's an R plus two. That should tell you everything you need to know. That's about amazing. This, yeah, right? that's, that's, yeah. So this is the one seat in America that everyone should pay attention to. If we lose Texas 15, there's no way to keep the house. 
in, and there's, we're going to lose a bunch more other seats because this is where the future of either party lays, right? Is you have this heavy working class brown district that's on the Mexican border that goes all the way up to the good suburbs with good schools outside of San Antonio. So watch this seat. But to your point, there's a runoff there because if you don't get 50% of the runoff of the race, you're in a runoff. There is a veteran former school teacher who's a lawyer running as a Democrat who won, but didn't win by enough running against a, um, a left leaning uh, community organizer slash small businesswoman. Uh, Michelle Vallejo is her name. Ruben Ramirez is his name. All depending on who wins this race, whichever way you lean, if you think the moderate military guy and he's running as a moderate wins, maybe it's better in an R plus two. If you think we need to get more base out and you want Michelle to win, like just watch that. That will say a lot about what this district does, almost in comparison to what you're going to see in the Texas 28 runoff for all of you at home. That's Henry Cuellar, longtime Democratic uh, conservative, conservative Latino in the Valley voted with George, voted with Donald Trump more than any other Democrat as a Latino. And he's running against Jessica Cisneros, a community organizer who ran against him last time and only lost by a few thousand votes. So that's going to be a, another big race of what does that district look like moving into the general redistricting made that seat. Uh, it took it from Democrat plus 12 to now just Democrat plus six. So it could be in play with the wrong candidate or with an influx of money. Interestingly, the House Majority Pack put down $3 million worth of TV ads in San Antonio because all these seats interchange in that San Antonio media market, Texas 28, Texas 15, and Texas 23. Okay. Are you, if you don't mind me asking, are you working on both of those races now? I'm working on IEs in the Texas okay. 15 race, and I'm not working on anything in the 28th, but I'm, I, I'm working on some IEs uh, in the 15th. How do you see the governor's race impacting those races? Beto O'Rourke is running for governor and he could have a huge impact, probably more impact than any singular person on the overall elections in Texas without winning. Winning would be a bonus. But what he did last time uh, when he ran for the Senate is that because of the amount of money he spent in mid-sized cities and counties where there's no party apparatus and where they were knocking on doors, having distributed organizing parties, calling out of people's basements and garages, he lifted all boats. And we elected two or three more state reps because of the organizing that Beto O'Rourke's campaign had done. And if that is an example, what he's putting together could lift all boats in that state, especially in mid-sized cities where there's no organizing going on. Makes sense. Okay. Uh, I want to make sure we get to at least most of these states. So Colorado, eighth, really interesting one. Um, I, I think this is like what the most Latino district in the whole country. Is that right? Saying that wrong? Yes, you are. Texas 15 okay. is the most Latino district. It's 78%. Seven, okay. So t- uh, tell us about Colorado the Colorado is the most, the Colorado race is the two interesting thing. One is it's the most Latino seat there, but B this is also a good learning experience for all the listeners is that because Colorado has a nonpartisan redistricting committee, they actually drew a new seat where all the new growth had been, Brian, imagine that. And guess where the new growth had been? A bunch of it has been from Latinos in Colorado. So they draw a seat north of downtown that's suburban and exurbs that is 40% Latino. That's very working class. That's where all the new growth has been. And on paper, it's literally a D plus a half a point. Like it's a true 50, 50 seat. It's going to be, 
It's going to be a flip of a coin. You have two Democrats running, uh, two leading Democrats, a state rep named Yadira, who's from Adams County. And you have Chaz Tedesco, who is a three-term county commissioner from Adams County, both of which would make great candidates. Uh, Y'all should know in full disclosure, I've been friends with Chaz Tedesco for over 20 years. He was a local union president at the same time I was a local union president in East Texas. And so we've known each other since we were kids coming up through the labor movement. Uh, Chaz is, I think, just a better fit for this district. He never went to college. He went away to the Navy and came back went to work in a factory like me, became an officer of his local union. And then he got recruited to run for county commissioner and has been elected three times. And in the last election in 2020, got 6,000 more votes than Joe Biden did in the largest county in the CD that represents over 400,000 of the 700,000 people that are in the new CD. That's amazing. Uh, so what's going on, on the Republican side in that race? Uh, it's like crazy saying, hold my beer. Look at this other crazy. Like it's just, a, it's a mishmash of, as Hillary Clinton would say, deplorables. Like it's just a bunch of crazy folks. And I think that's what makes this even more at play in a bad year for Democrats per se. And so, you know, watching who can out Trump each other, I think is hurting them there. There's a lot of Trump in this district because it's a 50, 50 district, but what people don't realize in this district, even though it's 50, 50 is that the largest registration, Brian, in this district is the non-affiliate independents. There's more of them than Democrats or independents in this district. And I think they'll make the real difference with the Latino vote. Let's jump to California. We talked a little bit about this last time we were on the show, but but um, we, we've had some significant changes. And I, but let's tell me the races that you think are realistically in in play here. I, it was people with different opinions on what's competitive and what's not. What's what's your take? A lot of these districts in California become a lot more democratic through redistricting just by, you know, because they have a nonpartisan commission and they followed the growth. And because of the Latino growth now, there's some districts in the Central Valley and Texas 20, Texas 22, California 22, that was a real R plus two or three. Now it's a D plus six or seven that people are saying won't even be competitive. A Democrat will win it in an off year election. I still think it's a 50, 50 district. There's a district in Southern California, 45. And I don't even remember who's running down there. Um, uh, that's also real 50, 50, but out, we didn't mention this, but outside of California, the other real race for everybody to watch that's got a heavy Latino population is Southern New Mexico. So there was this race in Southern New Mexico that's flipped back and forth from presidential years. Democrats would win it in off years. Republicans would win it for the last 10 years. Sochi Torres Small, a Latina, had it until 2020, and she got beat by a Republican woman. Now, because Democrats control all of redistricting, in New Mexico and all of their CDs are Democrat heavy. The one in Albuquerque is heavy. The old Ben Ray Lujan district in Northern New Mexico is heavy. So what they did is they took some of those Democrats from both CDs and put them in the South. And, and what they've done now is made this Southern district really more competitive to where Democrats could hold it for a long time if they run a good candidate. And there's this guy running named uh, Gabe Velasquez. Uh, he had, he's part of the, uh, the city council down there in Las Cruces. Uh, he's putting together a good team. The DCCC is hot on this guy. Uh, he's already got the bowl pack endorsement of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. So I flagged that one with Colorado 8 and with Texas 15 being the three most important CDs in America, in my opinion, because there are 50-50 districts, all with over 45% Latino populations, and on paper are just a pure toss-up. 
Yeah, and and states that are not you know, they're blue states, but they're but they're not and not Texas, of course, but um, but at least Colorado and, and New Mexico are not extreme blue states. So so sort of interesting bellwether. And Brian, you bring up a point that people should realize is that if there's not a big Senate race going on in your state and you don't have the Senate majority pack dumping ten million dollars of TV, then it's up to the congressional person. They don't have any help. Exactly. Well, let me ask you that about California, because I because I wonder if California is a, a little different only in the sense that we've got this cluster of competitive seats in Southern California in, in overlapping media markets, even in some cases. I, th- I think that's um, probably the only place in the country that has, you know, a, a handful of seats that are competitive, that are e- even contiguous in some cases. And I, so I got to think the party's going to take that really seriously. I, pity is obviously not in jeopardy. But are, but are they? Is there going to be some national air support? You would think in Southern California at least. Well, after the last election, we did an analysis of where the money was spent, when it was spent, and what language it was spent in. And to your point, twenty twenty was a big year. There was a lot of money spent. There was over ten million dollars spent by the DCCC in the House Majority Pack in these same seats. Keep in mind, these seats look very different, but they were very competitive, and we lost most of them to Republicans. Uh, but what I found, which was the most going back to our original conversation in the beginning, is that very little of that advertising was done in Spanish. Now, is Spanish the way that you get to all Latinos? No, but it's a way to measure what your overall Latino outreach looks like. If your district is over 30 percent Latino and you don't run a Spanish ad already tells me how you're doing the rest of your Spanish outreach. And I understand Spanish TV is expensive in L.A., but you found enough money, get this, Brian, to spend $24 million in English in the LA media market in California 39, which was Gil Cisneros, but spent zero in Spanish in a district that's almost 40% Latino. Yeah, so I, when I hear the argument that Spanish TV is expensive, I, I, I think, well, people aren't understanding that we can go home by home to Spanish-speaking households. We don't, we don't need to just buy Spanish TV. We, we, can, we can do digital on a home-by-home basis to, to exactly the right homes, pull out the ones we want in through CTV, um, not be any more expensive than the market. On the, on but it's not too expensive to do the English. This is a point I wrote about in my book, is that the reason that Democrats spend lots of money with a multi-layered approach, mainly on white women in the suburbs, sending them lots of TV ads and digital ads and radio commercials and mail pieces. Because if you spend a lot of money on, a, on a, an electorate of people, you can move the numbers. It's just a fact. No matter what you do, you can move numbers with a lot of money mo- most of the time. But w- when it comes to Latinos, we stop at the water's edge and only think of them as a canvassable universe, much like black voters. If you'll treat a black voter and a brown voter with the same intensity that you do a multi-layered paid approach to white suburban neighborhoods, you wouldn't have this problem that we're in in most of these districts. I feel like this, exactly what you said, um, happens across various demos in politics all the time. Um, we were having this conversation this morning with somebody about independent turnout in California, and they're like, oh, sort of bemoaning that independent turnout's low. So, well, nobody nobody talks to independents in front of us. So we've created our own reality, and then and then we sort of say, "Oh, that's low," but we're not trying. So of course, of course, it's going to be low. Uh, let me let it, me jump in here and tell you something, Brian. You've 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 triggered one of my twitches, which is we also leave out huge swaths of young black and brown folks when we talk about how all of these congressional races are run the same way with the same group of pollsters who figure out a persuadable universe through the same mathematical or modeled equation. I know I just routed off a lot of fancy words, but let me explain it this way. There's only a small group of people that the consultant says is worth our time to commit 
communicate with because you get the most return on your investment for just talking to these quote unquote persuadable universe. But because of the, of the, of way the transity of Brown voters, we're only the average age is 27. We move around a lot. It makes us like every other young person. We are more transient. We don't have desktop computers and we don't stay in the same house for the last three years. It's harder to get to us. Well, Democrats just give up at the water's edge on them as well. And they're not part of this universe of people that are persuadable. And because they're seen as an infrequent voter, especially in an off year cycle, they never get the communication back to your point about the independent not getting talked to. It's the same with the reason you're seeing two to seven points softening off to Republicans because they have unlimited budgets budgets, and they've opened up their targeting to even reach some of those young Latinos, especially young Latino men, to say, we have a place for you over here. You couple that with them stealing our working class narratives about buy American, drain the swamp, and working class blue collar stuff that used to be the bedrock of why Chuck Roach even became a Democrat. Then you see how we're starting to lose this vote. Yeah, um, I, I could, couldn't agree more. I, so I, I wonder uh, what your take is on mail-in voting in California and if that alone can have an impact on turnout. You know, we, we, cer we certainly saw some evidence of that in the last cycle. It's hard to make much out of a, a very high profile presidential race, but I'll, I'll just point to a more recent example. Even the Newsom recall, which is a sort of quixotic election. Yes, it was high profile. It was, it was a national story, but still an, an unusually timed election. We got 60% turnout and and I think some of that has to be the velocity of mail-in voting and what that's doing to people just, you know, understanding like, hey, the ballot's always going to be there. It is easier. What's your take on that? The take is that math don't lie and numbers just don't lie. I love these prognosticators who talk about what they think and they've never run a campaign in their life. The bottom line is if you just look what the percentages of people that are participating in their democracy in California compared to a like-minded state like Texas, it's through the roof easier, better. And you know, the biggest difference to your point, Brian, I just got through running a primary. We had 10 clients in Texas primaries. You can't vote by mail unless you're over 65, have a disability, or can prove that you're not home and still need to provide two forms of photocopied ID to vote by mail. It's, just, it's asinine, so, yeah. right? And then you see this, that's the only difference, girls and boys, between Texas and Colorado are these arcane rules around voter registration, voter participation, and early voting and vote by mail. And it's literally that you can watch it and watch Oregon results, watch Colorado results, watch these states where everybody gets a ballot. More people just participate in our democracy. And to all of you crazy Trumpers, there ain't a damn bit of any kind of proof that it's been any kind of fraud in any of this shit, because you got to be registering all the above. And I, and I feel like this could be like a sleeper uh, audience or audiences, I should say, in this next election, because as we were just saying, like a lot of these folks, yes, maybe didn't participate in the past. Clearly, the numbers don't lie, as you, as you say perfectly. They are participating now. And yet, by and large, the campaigns continue to not talk to them. So, so to the extent people do choose to talk to them, it's not even anymore about necessarily changing their behavior and getting out. What we're saying is, no, a big swath of them are going to vote anyway now because we're making it easier. And you might be the only ones talking to them if you choose to pick up that advantage. Right? I, I feel like this could be a huge competitive advantage for the campaigns that deploy that well. Yeah. And I think that, in, you know, when I wrote the book about the T.O. Bernie, when we talked about what we did in Nevada for 73% of Latinos in Nevada voted for Bernie Sanders in the 
caucuses. And it's because we expanded those targets to your point over a long period of time and had a conversation. There was only 19,000 Latinos who had ever caucused before ever, Brian, yeah. but there were 33,000 that had a primary voting history. That means they showed up in primaries and voted half of which had never caucused. So we start a long-term conversation with these folks about giving them a reason to go vote, but mainly Ian Mike Madrid argue about this on the podcast, the Latino vote all the time. He thinks it's got everything to do with messaging because he's a college professor <laughs> and I'm a dumb ass redneck from East Texas. Who's like, man, half the vote is just showing the hell up. If you'll show up and just, and show us some respect and act like you want our vote. That's half of the problem is just showing up. All Republicans have been doing to start getting two to 5% is showing up and arguing the other side where Democrats show up at the end. Cause they think of Latinos as only a GOTV universe. So right. that's how that we, that's the advantage. Yeah. Not, not a, not a persuasion. Universe. Okay. So, so we've, we've covered not all of them, but a bunch of them. Uh, but what's interesting to me is you doesn't sound like you've totally given up hope that we can hold the house. Am I putting words in your mouth? What's what, where, where's your, where's your blood? I will tell comes? you that I feel better about holding the Senate, which is crazy because it's 50, 50 than I do today about holding the house there in up until uh, two weeks ago for all of you nerds. And I know nerds listen to this thing. Cause I listen to this thing. Only nerds. That's, that's our hundred percent of our audience. And I mean, I'm nerd loving y'all up. I'm telling you. So up until four weeks ago, Democrats had a four to five. It's crazy seat advantage because of redistricting. When we were supposed to get crushed by redistricting and redistricting was going to be bad for Democrats. It wasn't great, but we had picked up like three to four seats. Well, in the last 72 hours, because of uh, court decisions in Ohio, Maryland of all places and one other state, we're going to be just plus one when this thing all shakes out, which is kind of an equal playing field. So in a bad year, I still feel better about the Senate than I do about these gerrymandered congressional seats where the Senate has enough money in the Senate majority in the DSCC with culturally competent black and brown operatives having a say-so in places like Philadelphia, Latinos having a say-so in Las Vegas and in Phoenix to where I feel like they will have enough money to put on the air and to knock on doors to have a competitive chance. And if you ask me about the house, what you're asking me to do is to say they're doing the same thing with the same people they've done over and over and hoping for a different result. We all know that's the definition of insanity. Okay, so so let me let me ask you about one issue that I I'm it's it's not necessarily a, a turnout issue per se, although I guess in some ways it is. But but I'm just really curious. Do you think if the Supreme Court overturns Roe or does something that's the moral equivalent of overturning Roe, that that could change the outcome of what's going to happen in the fall? There's there's just no absolutes in this business. Does it have an effect? Yes. Is it a huge impact? I just don't feel like it's huge. I feel like it has some impact. I just don't think that I think that we'll listen to the people that it does impact mainly activists. Right. But let's be clear, even without Roe overturned, the women's movement in democratic politics is probably one of the most powerful sectors of the overall electorate. There are white women running everything in democratic politics as rightfully so they've organized themselves into that power and i take my hat off to them they're kicking ass but they have used the choice issue women's issues mother issues as they should smartly to elect a lot of democrats but the general public who is not of birth age or younger or others like it's still a issue but it may not be the the main issue it's still going to be centered around an economic populist jobs and economy narrative that's where most of america is not saying 
that not a piece of America will be truly taken into the streets if they do that, including myself with Roe. But I don't think it would be like the thing. How do you think, if at all, the Ukrainian war it might impact the midterms? I think that it's it's taken, I think it's the first time we've had a young population of people like my son see war in real time living on our iPhones and on our computers. And I think it's been a little bit of a wake up call. Like I myself couldn't have find, found Ukraine on a map. I just couldn't have, I never went to college. We all know my story. You know, I'm an, a redneck anomaly, but these young folks who I follow, who I talk to my son regularly and like, it's just, I think it's having a different effect. Again, it's, it's like the choice thing in row. Is it going to mean that you're going to have this big turnout boost of young people that me and Bernie Sanders have talked about forever that never really materializes. No, but it is having some effect and we cannot say that it's not. I just see it happening in real time and not just on Twitter, boys and girls, but in real life folks who it's just, it's been hard to digest. And I think that it's going to have an impact. Yeah. I mean, I telegraphed a 16 year old daughter who totally coincidentally was doing online tutoring to Ukrainian girl before the war broke out and has been able to keep in touch with her until a few days ago when she became a refugee and she's lost touch with her since then. And and so we, we certainly had conversations in our house about nuclear war and NATO and no fly zones that I uh, didn't think a 16 year old w- would ever internalize. Um, but but I do but I do wonder if you think Trump is getting a little marginalized by this. You know, I'm not saying the Republicans have been good on this far from it. The, the, you know, Tucker Carlson and um, Madison Hawthorne are on Russian state TV most nights. But it does seem like Trump lost some of his momentum with whatever a mainstream Republican is anymore. Do you think I'm overreading? I that? think that compared to, and it was a great article this morning in Politico that in their morning playbook that talked about, could Donald Trump, and I agree with this, be a drag on the party in certain districts. If you say to me, was Donald Trump a positive effect in the 2020 congressional? Absolutely. He was right. He had this megaphone and everybody knew him and he helped in lots of places, but in these suburban heavy districts around San Antonio that we just talked about, around Las Vegas and Phoenix and around Philadelphia and Milwaukee, those working class, moderate Democrats slash Republicans, they ain't big Donald Trump fans and they they're conservative. They want to pay less taxes. They want the government out of their life and they don't want to be burning books down at the high school. And I think that when Donald Trump weighs in here in these midterms, I think it could have a, a bad effect, especially on these Senate races. Uh, in Pennsylvania and other places where they're counting on a Trump bump that I don't think will ever materialize without him on the ballot. Right. We're we're always fighting the last election, aren't we? Um, So, so Chuck, what have we not covered that you want listeners to hear about what we got you for a few more minutes? Look, I think that figuring out how we put emotion back into our politics as a party, and I'm talking about the democratic party is that I am so sick and tired of watching Republicans call me a Nancy Pelosi, liberal socialist tax hiking, you know, snowflake, like whatever that is. And I know a lot of this is just on Twitter, but we've got to get back to saying Democrats are with workers and Republicans have a war on workers. 
and that this woke genre, this woke stuff is just more wordsmithing of them trying to take money away from workers. When we start basing our realities of who we are as a party in the work, the work is what connects us as Democrats, whether you're digging a ditch or you're tapping a keyboard or you're working at a doctor's office. If you're a nurse, that work is what makes us not be the ultra rich because we got to work and pay taxes. We've got to get back to the party that represents workers. And I think that's where we have to get to if we're going to have any success for the future. Well said. So if people uh, want to subscribe to your podcast and, and I encourage all our listeners to do that, can you go ahead and give the names and uh, whatever other social information you want to give out? Follow me at Twitter at Chuck Rocha. The current <clears throat> podcast is the Latino vote. It's on Spotify and Apple with Mike Madrid and coming up in June, the second season of Nuestro pod. And I would ask you, if you want to go to Spotify or Apple podcast, you should listen to the first season of Nuestro pod, where I talked to Senator Alex Padilla, uh, award-winning journalist, Maria Hinojosa, uh, United We Dream executive director, Grisala, like some amazing Latino leaders who talk about their immigration story and what politics means to them. Excellent. Thanks for giving that out. would love to have you back as the elections get closer and certainly for a debrief afterwards. So um, always great to have you on the show, Chuck. Thanks for everything you're doing. Thank you. We invite you to share story ideas, comments, and questions. Find us at NeptuneOps.com or on Twitter at at NationStateOfP1. Again, that's at NationStateOfP and then the number one. Follow us and subscribe to listen to all of our episodes as we continue to explore the inside stories driving California policy. This is the Nation State of Play podcast, exploring the inside political stories driving public policy in California. Powered by Neptune Ops and presented by IVC Media. I'm your host, Brian Miller, and thank you for listening.